All right, community of faith, how we doing? All right, you awake? It's good. Glad you're joining us online. You've been waiting for this week, tools for dysfunction in marriage, all right? And we all have it, so I'm excited to get to share that with you. Marriage is without doubt the most difficult relationship that you'll ever undertake. And it was meant to be that way, is what we're gonna find out. Laura and I spent many years trying to uh, break through some of our destructive habits and with very little movement in that until we discovered what we're gonna talk about this morning and it was life-changing. It changed us completely. It changed everything about our relationship. So I want us to just dig into it really quickly here. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, he, he gives it, it's called the love chapter. You hear it in every wedding just about that you go to. Love is patient, love is kind. Helping us know that love isn't a, a feeling, it's not a mushy feeling that we feel, but, but it's a, a actions that we do. But right in the middle of it, he says something that I had a hard time understanding because it didn't seem to fit. It felt like he just kind of threw this in. He says, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 10. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Laura and I realized our lessons in love didn't start in marriage. They started in childhood as we learned how to get our needs met, as we learned how to kind of develop these patterns that, that we called love and what that looked like and this lasting imprint on our souls of what love is supposed to be, how to give and receive love. And what's interesting is Laura and I received very different imprints on that. And so we were kind of dancing to two different songs. No wonder we were stepping all over each other's feet. And it helped us to begin to understand this and it, it made a huge change. When we realized what Paul was saying here, I was asking God to, would you just show me what this means? Would you help me understand this? And then I stumbled uh, across a, a, a principle in psychology called attachment. And as I began to understand that and learn about that, everything changed because we began to discover that our fights with each other weren't even about each other. Did you know that your fight with your spouse almost every time is not about you and your spouse? It goes way back. And we have to go back in our lives and look at this because the way that we learn to give and receive love is going to be a major factor in how we experience marriage. And it's so important that we begin to understand that. Lasting change became possible when we understood what Paul was saying here. So, you know, I remember thinking, I have never been so frustrated with a human being in my life as I am with Laura after we got married. And so it must be her fault. Amen? No, just kidding. The, the, the whole thing that I, I understood was, I, I began to understand was, no, the exact opposite is true. It's coming out of something inside of me. 
primary relationships simply cause our childhood imprints and the resulting love styles to, to come to the surface so that we can see them, so that we can know what they are. It puts the spotlight on any childhood trauma or injuries or uh, just even the kind of family we grew up in, all of those things. The good news is marriage is not about getting your needs met. You're going, well, that doesn't sound like really good news because that's what I was planning on getting married for, to get my needs met. No, marriage, what God intended it for is about growing and healing. And marriage gives you the opportunity for you and your spouse to be each other's healers as you heal these wounds of attachment. And God knew that. And he planned that. That's the amazing thing. Understanding childhood attachment explained the root of why I was always pursuing Laura, and she was always distancing herself, backing up some. And we had this little thing that we did, and uh, it, it helped me to begin to understand that a little bit. Understanding attachment revealed why I was always gauging the temperature of our relationship. You can ask Laura, I mean, in those early years all the time, I would look at her, you know, we're supposed to be watching television, but I'm looking at her. So how are you doing, you know? She hated that question, you know? And we would be back and forth on some of these kind of things. It helped me to understand why I was always trying to connect and why connection was so hard for Laura. In fact, honestly, she was kind of oblivious to it in those early, early uh, years of our marriage. And so we're, we had this kind of destructive duet going. Did you know that your marriage problems did not begin with your marriage. Now that might not make a lot of sense to you, but you and your spouse are repeating the things that you learned in childhood. When I was a child, I did this, but when I became mature, when I grew up, when I began to understand, I put away those childish things. That's what Paul said. As I listened to Laura's memories, as she listened to my memories, compassion started to flow. Understanding began to move. And we began to, to see each other in, with whole different eyes. I want you to ask yourself a, a few questions this morning. Let me ask you these. Would you like less conflict and more intimacy in your marriage? I'm pretty sure that's a yes from all of us. Have you been married long enough to observe that the, the same fights occur again and again? Is unresolved conflict eroding intimacy in your marriage? Have you lost some of the affection that you used to enjoy? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then we got some great news for you this morning because uh, answers are coming. Had we known the significance of one little question early in our marriage, things could have changed so much more quickly. It's called the comfort question. We've asked it thousands of times as we've spoken uh, in counseling and coaching. I've asked it with friends and, and acquaintances and family. We've asked it. But let me ask you this question. I want you to really think about it, okay? This is a really important question, so focus in. Can you recall being comforted as a child after a time of emotional distress? Can you recall being comforted as a child after a time of emotional distress? Now, I'm not talking about 
when you had the flu or when you fell down and skinned your knee. I'm just talking, I'm there, but I'm talking about any little tiny, it might be a big trauma or a little trauma. For example, let's just say, you know, you're 15 and you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Did your mom or dad come in and say, I oh, know that's so hard. That's so, or did they just kind of tease you? It's just puppy love dog face. That's what my dad told me. You know, it was like, uh, he was kidding around, but it was like, did they comfort you? Or did they tease you? Or was there just nothing there, you know? Because maybe they didn't know how to do it. Your answer to that question could potentially reveal more about your relationships than any other insight that you might uncover. And you say, well, really? I mean, what, is, what does this have to do with marriage? Everything. Let me ask you a, just a follow-up to that. How was conflict handled in your family? How was conflict? Do you remember a time when you had conflict? And did you resolve that conflict? Were you able to sit down? You see, in a, in a perfect family, and none of us have that because the world is so broken, and your parents, I'm going to give them credit for doing the best they can. This isn't a parent attack today at all, but a lot of us in our, we had conflict, and it never really was resolved, but see, if you had a, a family where you were fortunate enough to be a part of a family that acknowledged problems and successfully resolved them, then you realize that when conflict erupts, that repair is possible, that you can find solutions, and repairing it brings relief. If not, when things go wrong in a relationship, you might have difficulty expressing yourself or even knowing what it is that you're feeling on the inside. See, what if you don't have any memory of comfort? You're pretty normal. They did a giant study, a survey of men and women and found that when they asked this question, 75% of us could not remember a time when we were emotionally comforted or when in conflict that we had repair that brought relief. And if you didn't have that, then what you're missing out on is soul words. You see, if you had a parent that could come and listen and hear and tuned in, then you developed some soul words. You heard from them as they would share from deep in their soul to you. And you would share deep in your soul to them. And it was soul to soul. And so you got these words that you were able. Did you know what marriage really is? Is two souls communicating with each other. But a lot of our marriages, 75% of them at least, right? Aren't like that. We, we, we don't get to soul words. We stay really surface. And one of the safest uh, emotions that we have is anger. And so we think, you know, we're angry with each other or we're, we're doing these different kind of dances that we're going to look at. Soul words. If you trusted your parents and felt safe enough to share your inner self with them, you learn soul words, expressing your feelings, being able to relate to people on a deep level. And soul words allow you to express all that's going on inside of you. And what you realize, the way God 
designed marriage, marriage isn't so that we can agree on everything, but marriage is supposed to be a place where we feel really safe with each other. Do you feel safe with your partner? Do you feel like that you can express those deep longings and, and your heartfelt things that are going on inside? Were you taught to even identify and express them? See, a lot of us right now, we're thinking, well, you know, I think I had a good childhood. I just, I, 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 I mean, it seemed like the good American childhood and all these kind of things, but you might not even know what I'm talking about when I talk about soul words. So we're going to look at this just a little bit today. The ability to console and bring relief to your spouse when he or she is upset or agitated is foundational to a close emotional bond. And a lot of us don't have that. Dr. Daniel Siegel in his book, The Developing Mind, he says we have two types of memory. And a lot of us don't know this, but the latest uh, uh, neurobiology has shown us uh, uh, so many things that we never knew before. But we have two types of memory. One is called explicit memory. That's what you think of when you think of memory. It's thinking back in the narrative, the story, okay? Explicit memory. The other is implicit memory. And that's in the right side of our brain. And the right side of our brain has no words. All it has is feelings. And, you know, these things that, that don't even have words to them. Did you know that when the right side kicks in, in two one-hundredths of a second, all of those emotions begin to move. And we're going to look deeply at that here in the next few minutes. As adults, we're influenced by these nonverbal implicit memories, and that's when they're activated in current relationships. We experience them as, as a flood of feelings, and we're not aware that they're memories at all because they don't feel like what we've been taught is a memory. But they are. They're memories. And we're going to see that. And it's going to make a huge impact. We disconnect emotionally. We don't feel emotionally safe with each other. And what couples often don't see is that most arguments are really protests over emotional disconnection. So let's dig into that just a little bit. Mark mentioned attachment styles, and those are the things that, that we've learned as children through repetitive interactions, either with our parents or with the primary caregiver, those, those people in your life that were important to you, and you had interactions with them that formed kind of a blueprint of how you relate in relationships today, the, the blueprint for how you expect to uh, be treated, how you expect to be um, communicated with, all of those things you learned then in your childhood and you brought it in to your marriage relationship. And there are basically four different attachment styles. I want to just kind of briefly See if you recognize yourself you. in one of these. I think it's real easy when, when I study them. I think, oh, there's Mark. That's Mark. And you'll see that right away. But I want you to think about yourself. Say, okay, well, that, that's my spouse. But let me think about me. Ask God to show you who you are. What was the style you Is there a totally messed up attachment style? That's my wife. Don't say that. <laughs> you know, let's look. The, the first one that uh, we want to talk about is the secure attachment style. Now, this is what everybody dreams of being. Everybody wishes and hopes that they are. 
but it's actually pretty rare. The secure attached, securely attached adult is the person that, that feels very secure in love, feels very secure in relationships. They feel confident in who they are. They can connect with other people. They believe that that person that they love is going to be there when they need them. They're not fearful in any way. They, they can identify memories from their childhood. They're not defensive. They don't experience anxiety or fear when it comes to relationships that to me, that rules out probably 99% of us, right? But, but this is the person who's securely attached. The typical thoughts of a securely attached adult are this. I know he'll be there for me when I need him. He's able to comfort me when I'm distressed. I enjoy getting emotionally close to my partner. I love when they share their emotions with me, when they say, let's talk now. How many of us <laughs> does that explain? People who are secure, they perceive themselves as, as lovable. They give clear emotional signals. They know how to talk with these soul words that Mark talked about. They can express their feelings. They can articulate their needs. And they allow their vulnerability to show. Now, again, that's a smaller percentage of our population, but there are some people out there like that. Maybe that's you. I hope and pray that is you. But let me share with you three other uh, attachment styles. One of these may be what you developed as a child. The second one is the dismissive avoidant attachment style. Um, the first thing about this one is, is that most of these people can't recall a lot of details about their childhood. Maybe you ask them you know, about their childhood or their family, and they may say, well, you know, my parents were, my family I don't know, I really don't have a lot of memories of my childhood. And maybe that's you. And it's not wrong or bad, but it's just something that you developed as a child, something that you learned. They, they have a, a tendency to describe their parents or their caregivers in kind of overly uh, saint kind of vocabulary, you know, like their parents were perfect in every way. They never did anything wrong or the opposite. They, they kind of demonize their parents and describe them as the most horrible people on earth. And, and probably neither one was true, but they talk in those terms. These are the people that, that tend to be detached. They avoid emotional closeness. They don't like when you say, let's talk. Um, they don't even like when you share your feelings because it makes them uncomfortable. Um, they really value self-reliance, competence, independence, because these things were taught to them as children, that these were valuable and that that's it's how you should It's kind of like, be. I'm a rock, I'm an island, you know? Right. Typical thoughts of a dismissive, avoidant adult are this. I don't really care if she doesn't love me or need me. I'm an island, I'm a rock, like Mark said. I don't tell him I'm upset because I can handle it myself. I can take care of my own emotions. I don't need anybody else's help. No problem, everything's fine, I'm good. You know somebody like that? You're is awful that, needy, but I'm is good, that you? right? Um, they, they tend to not acknowledge their need for attachment. They don't even probably understand that they need to attach. They struggle um, naming their needs in a relationship. They struggle finding any of those soul words like Mark talked about, finding any words to, 
to uh, describe what they feel. They may not even know how to do that. They may have never had that experience before. And they have the ability to kind of just shut down emotionally. If they're in an intense situation or something that's, that, that normally people would respond with really high emotions, this person has the ability when they feel that to completely shut it off. They're great to have in an emergency um, because they can handle the details of the emergency that's happening, but they, they can turn their feelings off. So think about that. Does that describe you? And I'm not saying these to say they're good or bad. Okay, all... don't point. Don't point at your spouse <laughs> right now. Okay. They are all just normal attachment styles that we learn, and we need to understand who we are in order to improve our relationships. The third style is the preoccupied anxious attachment style. And it may show up in adult relationships as a person who's kind of all caught up into relationships. They think about all the time how people relate to them and is this good, is it bad? How <laughs> are you raising your hand? <laughs> that is Mark. Um, but the, the kind of the central theme of this attachment style is that I'm afraid I'm going to lose relationships and I don't want to lose them. So what can I do? And they think about that all the time. How do I keep this relationship? How do I get close to this person? How do I get them to share with me? How do I get them to connect with me? You may guess that that attachment style tends to develop in children whose parents were a little less consistent with them, or maybe they weren't um, available or they were unpredictable in some way. And this child learns that in order to connect with this parent, they have to be thinking about it all the time. They have to make the effort to do it. A lot of times these uh, children grow up kind of enmeshed, a family that's enmeshed with one another. If you've ever seen that, maybe you've heard it called codependency, where everyone is um, too tied in together, and we actually have a, um, a recovery group for that <laughs> if you need that. Um, oftentimes, these children become parentified in a way that maybe one of the parents um, is not able to actually parent the child, and the child takes on a lot of those responsibilities. And so you'll see that in some of these children, and then you see it in the adults. Typical thoughts of a preoccupied adult are these. I often wonder whether he really cares about me. I often feel dependent on the other person for emotional support. I can't do it myself. I turn to him when I'm upset, but it doesn't really make me feel much better. And so then they continue to try and to pursue and to pursue. Instead of feeling love or trust toward their partner, they feel this kind of emotional hunger. And this was something that was implanted deep into them as they were children. And although they're looking for sense of safety and security by clinging to their partner, they are actually taking actions that push that partner away, which is what Mark and I saw when we first got married. So that's one of the reasons why I don't like a lot of the stereotypical kind of things about a man and a woman and all that, because Laura and I would go to these marriage conferences and I would go, I'm the woman. You're the man, you know. It's like, and I didn't so like that either. <laughs> the fourth attachment style is the fearful avoidant attachment style. They may uh, show some characteristics of either of the last two that I talked about, but two of the primary themes of this childhood is that this child most likely experienced some sort of uh, rejection by a parent. They may have experienced abuse in some way, um, either verbal or, or sexual or physical, and they haven't come to terms with that yet. And they, as they grow to be adults, they've been very hurt by people that should have loved them. 
And many of them, as adults, you'll see they have um, addictive issues, acting out type of issues, maybe uh, drugs or alcohol, maybe it's self-injury, those types of things. They do things to sabotage themselves. Um, that They desperately want to make connections. We all do. That's built into us by God. But they're terrified of that at the same time. They'll reach out and pull away, reach out and pull away because they're so afraid of having that connection. The fearful adult um, often heard negative messages um, from a caregiver or a parent as a child. Those things like, you know, what's wrong with you? You'll never amount to anything. I wish you'd never been born. You're way too emotional, you know. Yeah, and and as they are children and they hear these things over and over, they internalize them. And when they become adults, they just believe them. They believe those things to be true about themselves. These statements can have, obviously, a a long-term lasting negative impact on their self-esteem, on their sense of worth. And um, some of the typical thoughts of a fearful adult are, there's something wrong with me, or I don't matter, I hate myself. Have you ever thought those things? No one would want to be with someone like me. No one will ever really love me. A person with this fearful avoidant attachment, they kind of live in an ambivalent state because they desperately want to be loved and connected and they are desperately fearful of that happening. They get overwhelmed often with their emotions. They can be unpredictable in their moods. They tend to be in relationships that are full of drama. Have you ever seen a couple like that? One of those in that couple has this uh, fearful avoidant lifestyle. They, they want to get close to each other, but they know that they're going to get hurt because and if they both have it, their life is like a soap opera, you know? Yeah, they grow the up. sand through the hourglass. <laughs> the, the person or people that are supposed to love them most have hurt them most. And so they are afraid to get in a relationship and afraid to be hurt again. So our attachment style affects everything from, the, um, from our partner selection to how our relationships progress and sadly to how they end as well. And that's why recognizing our attachment pattern can help us in our relationships to understand our strengths, understand our vulnerabilities, understand what's happening when we get in those arguments with one another that it's really not the other person. It's it's with my own self. It's with what I grew up understanding right or wrong about myself. And those things have to be dealt with so that we can grow and change in our relationships. And I want you to hear today that it doesn't really matter what attachment style you ended up with as an adult. Yeah, this is the good news. You can grow and change. We can all learn to have a secure attachment style, and that really is the good news. You can learn to do that. For, For adults who had traumatic memories or unreliable or inconsistent parenting, you can still acquire a secure relationship. And that's what we want to help you see today and give you some tools to help bring that about. So you're saying, well, that's childhood, but what does that have to do with right now? I'm glad you asked because marriage, God created to heal these things. And that's because we have what psychologists call triggers. We're triggered. Triggers, let me just give you a good definition of it. Sensitivities that come from our temperament, our personal attachment histories, from negative experiences in our relationship histories. And they always reflect moments when a loved one was perceived as not responding to our need for attachment. So triggering our attachment fears from all the way back then. 
there's a couple of, how do you recognize it? A couple of signs. One is that your emotions are too high. Like if you could reasonably think about it, and some of us never have, but if we did, we'd say, okay, this is where this argument is. I should be at about a three, but why am I at 11? You know? And so you get these, these uh, emotional feelings that are off the scale. One client says it this way. So we're in the car having this ordinary chat and suddenly there's ice on the inside of the car. Like she's looking away from me out the window. Her mouth is in a taut line. She's all glum as if she wishes I didn't exist. Where did that come from? I think that word suddenly is key here too because those emotions go off the chart but it happens suddenly like that. Two hundredths of a second it happens. And it's a memory but we don't classify it as a memory because it's one of those implicit memories. So there's a sudden radical shift in the emotional tone of the conversation. Another thing, another way that we can see it is uh, the reaction to a perceived offense. It just, it's so out of proportion, like I said. It it doesn't really fit in the proportion of, of what's really going on. Another client says this, We usually make love on Friday night, so I was waiting for him, but then I got a call. Uh, I got caught up in a call from my sister who was upset. It was about a 15-minute call, I guess, but he came downstairs and went ballistic. We got into our usual fight. Can you feel the love tonight? Nope. Nope. Feel it, do you? Because this is going on. And so let's break down real quickly what happens when you're triggered. I think for me too, I just want to share when, when we get in an argument, not that we ever argue, Never. Um, but I notice I'm triggered when I'm in, we're in the middle of it and all of a sudden I'm thinking, what are we doing? Like, how did we get here? What are we, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore because everything has changed. I still know what we're talking about. <laughs> no. Our body goes into a kind of a, a fight or, or flight mode. First, this attachment cue, it grabs our attention And this happens unconsciously, and it turns on our childhood attachment system, our longings, our fears, and that attachment uh, cue is a trigger that plugs directly into our childhood panic. It bypasses reason. So we fear for our relationship. Our body goes into fight or flight mode, one or the other. We have a parasympathetic system, and, and that causes fight. You know, and God gave us that. If we see a bear coming out of the woods, you know, and if it's you and me and we're just like hanging around having a picnic and all of a sudden this giant bear comes out, we're going to go into either parasympathetic, which is uh, fight, or we're going to go into the sympathetic, which is flight. Now, I know which one I'm going into. I'm going into flight, especially if I look at you. I can outrun you, you know. I'm going into the flight mode, you know. And so we look at those things and our body goes into one of those two things and it's not conscious, it's not intentional. And the way we respond is usually based on that attachment style that we learned growing up. You could call fight protest and you could call flight withdrawal. If our attachment style from childhood is avoidant, meaning that as children our parents were not always emotionally available to us, we tend to withdraw. If our attachment style was anxious, meaning that our parents were sometimes there, sometimes not, we never knew if we could count on that for sure, or it was really enmeshed, then as adults, 
we tend to feel conflict and we tend to protest. And it's not always a, a, a pretty thing, you know, because in attaching, in, in finding our attachment, it's not necessarily always reasonable. And to have any kind of reaction is better than no reaction. And so what we began to see are these these things that, that start to happen. Proverbs 25, the wisest man who ever lived, he said this, the real motives come from deep within a person, as from deep waters. But a discerning person is able to draw them up and expose them. According to a landmark study by Ted Huston of the University of Texas, when marriages fail, it's usually not increasing conflict. That's the cause. It's decreasing attention and emotional responsiveness. So understanding attachment answered the questions that had tormented me for, for, for so long. It, it, it told me all those powerful emotions that came up when people are feeling this. They're not irrational. They make perfect sense. In, in counseling, partners act like they were fighting for their very lives over some of these smaller things. But the truth is, they were fighting for their very lives because that sense of attachment is what gives us meaning in life. Isolation and potential loss of loving connection is coded into the human brain as a panic response. And so it was created by God because what God wants to do with it, he wants to use our marriages as a healing tool for us if we can understand that. But most of us don't. Let me just give you a a few different kind of scenarios here, these different kind of dances that we do, depending on your style. The, number, the, the first one is called find the bad guy. Is this you? Find the bad guy. Adam and Eve in the garden, that's what they did. Remember, God came and he said, he said did you eat of the tree? And, and Adam right away goes, it was the woman that you gave me. You know, it was, she's messed up. This is find the bad guy, okay? Um, mutual blame that keeps the two of you miles apart. The purpose of find the bad guy is a pattern of self-protection. It's not me, it's you. And partners can bring up detailed example after example after example. One guy said, you know, when we get in an argument, my wife, she just gets historical. He said, you mean hysterical? No, historical. She can remember every single thing that ever happened that I did like this and they bring up these examples to prove their point they fight over whether these details are true and whose bad behavior started it you'll find that when there's two anxious people that get together anxious and anxious equals attack attack and that's what you see how do you stop well you recognize that no one has to be the bad guy no one is a bad guy. The pattern that you're doing, that's the villain in this scenario. There's no true start to the circle of criticism. It just goes round and around. And even if you win, ah, I proved that with all of my examples that you are wrong. You lose. All right. I told one guy, he had this and I said, you're going to, you're right, but you're going to be the most lonely right guy in the world here pretty soon. And it was accurate. I mean, I predicted his divorce. John Gottman, who did a lot of studies, said that this is one of the predictors. Another kind of dance that we do, protest and withdraw. This is the most common one because 
it seems like these two types get together. This is when an anxious gets together with an avoidant, okay? And, and so what happens? The anxious partner's trying to get a response, any response. Sometimes it'll even get really ugly just to get some kind of response from their partner. And what does the partner do? It's called stonewalling. They just go like ice or blank or disappear. It's an amazing thing that we've learned how to do. And John Gottman, again, of the University of Washington in Seattle, he he says that people that fall into this pattern usually don't make it to the fifth year of marriage. And that's because there's this thing going on. One partner reaches out, albeit in a in a negative way, and, and the other steps back, and then the pattern repeats, and it repeats. And sometimes it's hard to recognize because it's not attack, attack. It's attack, withdraw. But what happens is that the attacking person just keeps coming, and the withdrawing person's trying to move back, but the attacking person is trying desperately to connect. And so we begin to see that. So what would you do about that? Well, the protester, what you would do is be far less worried about the connection and realize that God's got this, okay? And express yourself softer and clearer. The withdrawer, be more receptive and responsive to the appeal. Don't just hear their words, but hear their words and emotion as an appeal, not as an attack. Let me just read you what one client said about this. The more he refuses to talk to me or dismiss my feelings, the angrier I get and the more I poke him, says one wife. Anything to get a response from him. And then he says, and the more I hear that angry tone in her voice, the more I just hear that I can never please her and I just get hopeless and more silent. It's the spiral that's the enemy, not the partner, okay? And then a third dance that we do is called freeze and flee. If you're an avoidant who marries an avoidant, which is not as common, but it does happen sometimes. You do this withdrawal, withdrawal. That means that no one is reaching for anyone here. No one's taking any risks. This is the couple, they might live together for a really long time. Some of you can think of your parents, you know, but they were just kind of like, rocking along, living different lives, and not emotionally connected. It also can happen in the anxious avoidant when the anxious person that's been trying to connect finally just gives up. A lot of people think, I think my marriage, if they're avoidant, they think my marriage is getting better because she's not attacking me anymore. No, your marriage is almost over because she's given up. She's not trying to connect or he's not trying to connect anymore. So what's the hope? What do we do? How do we do this? The key is to learn to slow down because those things are happening so fast. Listen to one of my favorite prayers in scripture. It's found in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. And it's my prayer that I started asking God so that I could see this. Investigate me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my troubled thoughts and see if there is any way in me that causes pain and lead me in your way everlasting. A way in me that causes pain. And so what I ask the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, would you just, you know, tap me on the shoulder and say, look, there it is. You're doing it. 
When the withdrawer moves away, a lot of times they're thinking thoughts like, I never get it right. I never make him happy or I never make her happy. I'm just not going to bother anymore. What's the point? And these thoughts are accompanied by vulnerable emotions like feeling rejected, inadequate, afraid of failure, all of these things. Overwhelmed, judged, shamed. A lot of shame can come up. When the protester pushes and pursues, what they're actually thinking is he's never around or she's never around when he's always distracted, even if he is around. And she doesn't see me no matter what I do. I don't think I count in her world very much. Try to see it as knocking on the door of your heart. The Song of Songs in 5.2 says, my beloved is knocking. And that's what's happening in the midst of that. We need to remember that if it was our child that cried, we prioritize the signal, right? We go to them. But I need you to see your spouse and understand we're all just grown-up children. That's who we are. And these are cries of help. Now, we've learned how to do it maybe in a really ugly way or just a really distancing way. But these are cries for help. And God allows the pain because he wants something for us in marriage. He wants us to become unstuck. So that we'll grow, right? I think um, hopefully you've recognized a little bit of yourself, maybe a little bit of your relationship here this morning and, and how you're, you get into those arguments and why they end up the way they do. But I want to give you a couple of questions to help you when you find yourself in that situation and you feel almost helpless to get out of it. What do, what do I do? What do I do? Because remember, we're all really just trying to connect with each other on an emotional level. And that's why we have those arguments either, even we're wanting to connect with one another. So the first question to ask yourself is, what am I most afraid of? Now that may sound funny when you're thinking about having an argument. I'm not afraid. I'm angry, right? I'm just mad. I'm not afraid. I'm upset. I'm not afraid. I'm afraid I married a moron. But honestly, the key emotion in all of those times when we feel disconnected from one another, and remember we're trying to feel connected, is that we feel fear. There's an unconscious fear of the loss of the relationship. And that's why we're fighting, because we're fighting for that relationship. We're fighting for connection. So you have to think about what are you afraid of? What is it actually that I'm feeling? And I know when Mark and I first got married, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to express a feeling. He would ask me what I'm feeling and I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe feelings. I don't know how to say it. And so we found a tool that's really helpful. I know some of you use this personally in your lives, but there's a thing called the emotion wheel or the feelings wheel. I think we have a picture of that to put on the screens, but we began to use this and it's an incredible tool. You'll see in the very center, are those things that um, you maybe usually feel that are easy to identify. You know, I feel sad, happy, angry. But those general broad feelings actually have a lot of things underneath them. And so if you look further along the wheel, like say you look at powerful, and then it says, well, I feel proud, or I feel successful, or maybe mad, and you go across and it says, I feel selfish, or I feel unloved or I feel skeptical and it'll help give you the actual words to what you're really feeling. So instead of just saying, I'm angry, you can say, I feel disrespected. 
today. Or instead of I'm joyful, you can say I feel so confident today. And it helps give you words to the things that you're feeling. And we need this desperately because so many of us, if we didn't learn those soul words, these are soul words when you get to the outside part. And we'll just stick with like anger because that's a safe one. And that's not a vulnerable one. That's armored up. And so nobody can get through that. But you can't connect if you've got armor on. I think in a, when you're looking at one of those situations where you're triggered and you feel that emotion rise up really high, it's good to pull this out and say, okay, what am I feeling? What am I afraid of? And it helps you to identify it. And you can say in this, in this situation, the trigger was... And it could be anything. It could be a word or a gesture, a sound, a smell. It doesn't matter. But if you think back to when those emotions shot off the scale, what was it that triggered me? In this situation, the trigger was that dismissive gesture that you made. Or maybe it was just the intensity of the way that you were talking. And then you can say, on the surface, I probably showed anger. But deeper down, I just felt afraid that you would leave me. And when you're able to share those deeper, more vulnerable emotions, I can promise you that everything changes. The way your spouse feels changes. The way they're thinking about you changes. They begin to listen. And that's so important that we listen to one another without interrupting. When they begin to share these soul feelings with you, you need to just listen. That's crucial. And the second question then to be answered is, what do I need from you most? In this moment... After I've been triggered and I'm feeling this uh, fear of being abandoned by you, what do I need most from you now? And to be able to explain that, the fear and longing are kind of the two sides of the same coin. And when we're in a state of fear, we have to recognize there's something that we're needing and we're needing it from that partner and to be able to communicate. And that can take a big leap of faith for those of us who, who didn't learn to do that. But it's, it's kind of taking the mask off and saying, here's who I am and here's what I need from you. When we uh, first started Community of Faith, I remember in our very first year, um, we had planned a big Texans barbecue after the service. It was going to be everybody staying. We had one service. Um, we're going to have barbecue. It was kind of the the initial COF tailgate, if you guys remember that. We were meeting at Goodson Middle School. We had games for the kids that were going to be there and everything. And so at the end of the service, Mark was going to invite everybody to stay and be a part of that. But he had gone off stage and put on this like rubber Texans mask. It was I don't like, know if you've it ever was all the Texan colors and stuff, but that. it covered my whole face. And you it couldn't had, see my face. you know, had eye holes and this little slit for his mouth, but his whole face was covered. And he came running back onto the stage. I had, I had the, the microphone back outside. Yeah. I put the microphone on the outside of it, came running back onto the stage, and, and his intention was to invite everybody to stay and have fun with their kids. But here's what it sounded like when he got back with the mask on his face. And nobody knew who I was, because, I, I, I mean, I thought they would know it was me, but they, everybody was about to run. I was really saying, are you ready for some barbecue? And it went... <laughs> And Everybody you can like see jumping can, out of their chair. Yeah, you can see the look on their faces. I the pulled children, my mask off really quick. It's just me, guys. It's just, you know. <laughs> the children were afraid. Like, <laughs> what is this? What's Successful going first on? barbecue for sure. But in my mind, when I think about that situation, Mark had to take his mask off to clearly say, "Here's what I'm trying to communicate to you." 
And in our relationships, when we get into those arguments and we feel triggered and we're, we're trying to express how we feel and what we need, we, we really do have to take the mask off. And it's not that, that we're trying to get our needs met by one another, although God uses your spouse certainly to meet some of your needs. But the point is that we're developing intimacy with one another. And that's what you're looking for. That's the need you're longing for. When you feel disconnected and you want to be connected, it's like, I need that intimacy with you. And when your spouse can say, this is how I felt, this is what I was afraid of, and here's what I need from you, that's intimacy. And you begin to know them better. Let me give you an example with Laura and me. Like, So Laura's got this, you know, I'm a rock, I'm an island, I don't need it. And so she's giving me this vibe, this feel, and I'm trying to connect to her and she's like, you know, dismissive and like, and then finally we would get to those questions and I would say, so, you know, what do you need from me? And she would stun me. She said, I just need you to hold me right now. And I'd be like, how do you hold a porcupine? You know, I was like, really carefully right but it's and and it just blew me away because that would be the last thing I I was thinking I just need you to disappear off the planet right now you know but that wasn't even close to what she was thinking I'm going to give you just a few examples because if it's hard for you to communicate these kind of things just to think about I need to know that I'm loved and accepted with my failings my imperfections I can't be perfect for you, and I need to know that's okay. I need your reassurance. I need your attention. I'm feeling a little bit insecure today. To know that I come first, even ahead of your job, even I need to know that I'm needed, that you want me close. I need to know that I'm safe because you care about my feelings and my hurts. You listen to me. Maybe it's just I need you to listen. I just need to be heard today because nobody listens at work. I need you to hear me. I need to know that you'll respect me. Please don't dismiss me or leap to thinking the worst about me. I need to know that you're going to respect me. I need to know that I can count on you. I need to know that I can ask you to hold me and you're going to be there to do it, that you're going to try to live with me in an understanding way like Mark talked about last week. The emotional bond that this produces many of you have never experienced. And Mark and I didn't for many years in our relationship. I had no idea that it was something that could be experienced. And it changes everything. I mean, everything. You can't even imagine. So it's not about meeting one another's needs, although hopefully you'll try to do that. God's the only one who can meet all the needs that you have. But it's about experiencing intimacy and really knowing one another. Again, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he said, a soft answer turns away wrath. And that's some of what we're talking about. But the way God designed us, and we'll just close with this, in our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that, that's right there, that, that's kind of our, our self, the way we think of ourself, there are these things called mirror neurons. Because God created us to connect to people and to connect to him. And when Laura switches and she gets under the anger or the withdrawal or the, hey, I don't need you because I'm feeling this from my childhood. This is not safe. I'm going to step back. You know, there's too much emotion. I'm not used to talking about emotion. But then all of a sudden she says, I just need you to hold me. What happens is they've actually shown with scans 
that those mirror neurons in both of us begin to vibrate. And there's this connection that's a deep, deep connection. God made us that way. And some of you have never in your life felt your mirror neurons really go off. Maybe with a child at times because you feel like they're safe. But when it's with your spouse, everything begins to change. Everything. And that's the way God intended this healing begins to come that, that heals some of our, our childhood, whether it's trauma or, or it was just learned ways of, of, of trying to relate. And that's what he wants for us. He wants us to be whole and healthy and healed. He wants us to rule and reign with him forever and learn how to be overcomers. That's what marriage is about. And if you've not experienced that, can I just tell you, I mean, like my relationship with Laura is the sweetest thing in my life. The most amazing thing. I'm more in love with her right now than I've ever been in my entire life. And that's because we've begun to move closer and closer into this. And it's like even right now, our mirror neurons are just vibrating back and forth, you know. And I, I just want you to have that. I, as your pastor, I desire that for you. And it just lines up with Scripture so completely. There's so many other Scriptures that would fit. So this week, watch your interactions. You can download that feelings wheel. Just Google feelings wheel. It's so easy. It's free. It's right there. Google does some pretty good stuff every once in a while, you know. So uh, that's one of them. It'll just pop right up there. Feelings wheel. I was talking to a couple of men just uh, yesterday morning, and they said, you know, y'all did this marriage thing for us, you know, in small groups, and, and, and that feelings wheel, it's up on my refrigerator, and it's changed everything. Because every time I get angry, I go up to that feelings wheel, and I try to figure out what it is that I'm actually feeling, and I try to get to that with my wife and it's everything starting to change so watch your interactions this week your assignment your homework tell yourself the truth okay my conflict is not with my partner it's with my childish ways it's not uh, it's not between us it's the pattern my partner is trying to connect with me there's no good guy there's no bad guy it's not safer to disconnect. This is the way that I've learned. This is the way that I've figured out how life works. Slow down and look below the surface. As you get deeper and you say, this is what is really going on. Intimacy into me see. And you find a soul word off the feelings wheel because you're not very good at it yet. And you begin to express that, you'll begin to see that change, those mirror neurons that begin to vibrate together. And things begin to change. You begin to move toward each other. So when you get home, look up Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, because I want you to pray this all week. Investigate me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my troubled thoughts. And see if there is any way in me that causes pain and lead me in the way everlasting. Thanks for listening today. We love you guys so much. I want to just um, say a prayer over you and um, just believing that God's going to do something amazing in your life, in your relationship. We have counseling available 
and I highly recommend it. And uh, our men and women over there, they're amazing. We've got the best counselors. We've really spent a lot of time to find them, and they can help you with this too. God, I just ask that you would do this in our marriages. It's your, your longing. Just as when you relate to us, you said you made us like you, so you in some way have something like those mirror neurons that begin to vibrate as we focus on you and ours begin to vibrate as we see you and experience you. We feel it in worship a lot of times as we're singing to you. God, let that be true in our closest relationship on this planet. Come kingdom of God upon our marriages. Be done will of God over our marriages. Let nothing stop what you have in mind for us in Jesus' name.